Good morning, good afternoon, and perhaps good evening to you, wherever you might be listening. It's another episode of Inside the World of Duotone with your host, Lewis Crathen. Today, we are talking to none other than Sky Solback, one of our key designers at Duotone. We will talk about a variety of topics from how he has got onto the Duotone design team and the big news that he is now working on kite design. Joining me all the way from Hawaii, welcome Sky. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Who are you and what is your role on the team? Uh, well, my name is Sky Solbach and uh, I've been working with Boards of Morris since 2004. So however long that is, about, I guess, 19 years by now. And uh, my role these days is a surfboard designer and more recently in the last year or so, a uh, kite designer. So I'm doing a lot, a lot of uh, design on kites and boards. And in the past, I've done wings and uh, wing boards and whatnot. But uh, yeah, these days it's kites and, and surfboards. So that's a long time, 2004. That's not long after I started actually kiteboarding in the first place. I bet there's not many people listening that have actually kite surfed longer than that. So let's take it all the way back. We're going to get into the exciting news about your new role as a kite designer as well and what you do day to day. But I want to go all the way back to, let's start with how how did you get into kiteboarding in the first place? Where was that? Uh, I first saw kiteboarding in, I guess, about 98, 99. And that would have been in the Hood River area where I used to spend summers when I was a kid. And the first kiters I ever saw were Corey Raisler, uh, Lou Wayman, and Elliot LeBeau. And I remember specifically that what got me into kiting was watching Lou Wayman come in full speed on a little two-line kite and a wakeboard. And he just carved this big turn and went back out. And I was sitting on the beach watching this. And I just remember thinking how cool it was that he could, he could ride such a tiny little board and do this big carve. It was just a you know flat water carve, like something pretty simple. But at the time, it was just mind-blowing to me that he could ride such a, a tiny board. And that sort of really sparked my interest. And um, it was about a year or two later, I think it was in 2000, that I first uh, borrowed a kite from a friend and started this journey into kite surfing. And you never looked back. And I never looked back. So at the time I was, so I grew up windsurfing. Uh, windsurfing was kind of my sport when I was a, a kid and a teen, a young teenager. And, um, yeah, when kiteboarding came along, it just looked like the next evolution of windsurfing to me, like the next evolution of being able to ride smaller gear and have more possibilities of jumping and, you know, just, um, riding in less wind and having less gear to travel with. It just looked like it had so many benefits and it was new and exciting. And I didn't really think twice about it. I just sort of jumped in and started doing it. And, um, my first board was a, an old surfboard I had that my dad and I converted uh, to have foot straps. So we basically put carbon on the on deck of this small surfboard and screwed some foot straps to it. And that was uh, my first kite board and my dad and I learned together and yeah, never really looked back. So it sounds a bit like design is in your DNA from that nice description you gave us of customizing your 
your first board, but it's not like you learned to kite surf and then just found yourself on the design team for Duotone. Tell me a bit more about your early days competing. I know that you was a big name in kite surfing. Certainly when I started kiteboarding in 2002, 2003, it wasn't the design work that you were doing that got your name out there. So take me back to those, those days competing. Yeah, so I started kiting, I guess, in it was 2000 or 2001. And um, at the time, the only the only real path towards, you know, getting free gear, which which is what I was interested in at the time, because I couldn't afford it was to go to a competition and see how I could do. And I wanted to do well in a contest and, you know, get sponsored with the motivation of just being able to get gear and being able to pursue kiting every day. So I went to a contest. My first contest was actually in St. Martin in the Caribbean. And it just happened to be the first contest that Andre Philip also was going to. And that's where I met him for the first time. And he and I ended up in the final together and he actually beat me. He won and I got second. Uh, but that was my very first contest. And, um, from there, I, you know, kind of had some bragging rights that I'd done well in a contest and I was able to get some free gear and, uh, kind of, uh, work my way into to doing it that way. So, I mean, at the time, just contests seemed to be the, the, you know, the clearest path towards getting sponsorship and being able to sort of pursue this at the time, just for fun, not really thinking so much. I know I was 18 years old at the time, so wasn't really motivated by money, but just by fun and, and being able to be in the water and kite every day. The joys of being a young person. I think that lots of people will really relate to that when they think about what it, they were doing as young people. And certainly um, I can echo that from my own experiences that the thought of buying a full kite quiver was something that was impossible, certainly when I got into the sport as well and searching for any way you could make your life a bit easier to get the equipment um, was definitely a thought pattern I've been through. And you're right, the competition scene back then was the way to go. And, and as a young person as well, you can be, you know, if you're half decent, you have that competitive brain, you start to think, hey, maybe I can take on some other people. So you started competing. Where did that take you around the world? Um, yeah, I just started competing. I did some regional U.S. events. Um, there were some events in San Francisco at the time. The King of the Bay was one of them. Uh, there was a contest in Hood River, in the Hood River area called the Bridge of the Gods, which I competed in. I think that was in 2002 or 2003. Um, and then my first international kind of contest, like pro contest, was a PKRA event in uh, Cabarete, Dominican Republic. I went there and I think I got seventh place or something like that. And at the time that that was a really big deal for me. Cause it was kind of like all the guys that I'd seen in the magazine at the time, Mark Shin and, uh, Adam cook and, uh, you know, Martin Vari, all those guys were there and I was competing, you know, head to head with those guys, which was pretty cool. And then the next contest I went to was Fuerteventura a few months later. And I ended up getting, I think second place there, second or third. I think I ended up second. Podium on the um, podium. Podium, yeah. So that was my first breakthrough podium, and then uh, from there, I just you know started following the tour, and I went to every PKRA stop, and then that just kind of became my you know my motivation was to do well at contests, and did that for for several more years after that. 
and that was sponsored by uh, brands of Boards and More, I imagine as well. So you, oh, oh you can tell me. So well, yeah, at the time, so my first sort of unofficial sponsor was actually Slingshot and uh, Tony Lagosh, uh, who's a, who's a designer there. Um, I think he actually gave me a board. Um, actually, I know he gave me a board. He gave me this pickle fork twin tip. And at the time I was so amazed that he just gave me this board. So thanks, Tony. And, uh, I wrote that for about a summer and, uh, I got some kites from slingshot and, um, that was really nice of them to, to hand me some kites. And then eventually I got on Nash actually for about six or eight months. I was riding Nash kites. So those first contests, those first PKRA contests, I was riding Nash X2s. That was, uh, the I know them. They looked wonderful. And, uh, <laughs> the orange yeah, one, the orange one especially looked like a tiger. Oh, yeah, God. exactly. Yeah, had the big stripe down the middle, and uh, yeah, we were doing board offs and big air, and um, you know, nothing like the big air the kids are doing these days. But you know, jumping with a kite overhead, doing big lofty jumps and spins and board offs, and um, yeah, it was a really fun time in the sport. And then um, later on, I got onto the Gastra team. Gastra was doing a, a big push into kite boarding at the time and i rode for gastro for about a year and a half and then finally that came to an end and um but that's when i um teamed up with boards and more at the end of 2004 and uh that's a big thanks i have to give a big thanks to jaime Herais, who i'm sure you also know mm-hmm. uh at the time he was testing and, and developing kites with ken winner at at boards and more and um he sort of brought me into the test team and i got on board with them and started testing kites and yeah the rest is kind of history wow isn't that interesting how you can just assume that someone's been connected with a brand for you know the, the since the beginning of time but actually i got that completely wrong there were many brands that you had short stints with i guess in the early days but you did find your way eventually to boards and more where you've had this very long career both competing a bit and also hugely on the design team i want to go straight in here and talk about this latest news that you are firmly on the kite design team is it a bit different from maybe the the surfboard shaping that you you've began your design um career with with boards and more um, it, it's different in some ways. It's a little bit less, um, hands-on and well, it, depending how you look at it, like with the surfboards, I was actually physically, you know, I was doing almost every step from, you know, conceptualizing the design to actually designing it to, I have a CNC machine where I was CNC milling the boards, hand shaping them, glassing, sanding, basically doing every step of the process all the way through and testing the boards. Um, so with kite design, it's a little bit different that it's more about the computer work and the, and the design part. And then, you know, obviously I'm not making the kites myself. <laughs> They're made in our factory and shipped to me. And then, um, with kites, it becomes more about the design and then the testing aspect of it. So spending a lot of time on the beach, hands-on testing, you know, tweaking bridles, all that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit different in that way, but it shares a lot of similarities because it's, it's about coming up, you know, it's about being creative and, uh, you know, coming up with new concepts and then implementing them and, and most importantly, testing them, spending a lot of time on the beach testing and feeling out different concepts and, um, 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of, there's actually in both, I would say a lot of trial and error, you're trying stuff and then you, you know, figure out why it does work or why it doesn't work. And then it's kind of back to the drawing board and come up with something new and just doing a lot of iterations and spending a lot of time to try and get it right. Has this always been a big part of your plans? Now, I think it's fair to say you have been more associated with the surfboard lineup with the brand, but did you always have a keen interest on the kite design as well? With a name like Sky, I feel like it was always on the cards. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, well, I mean, it's funny because um, it's a new role for me in terms of actually designing the kites myself, but I've been working with Ken Winner, who's been our designer since the very early days, actually since the beginning of the, the brand in 2001. So I started working with him. You know, Jaime brought me into the, the testing circle in 2004. And then, you know, I tested kites together with Ken and Jaime for a couple of years. And then Jaime sort of faded out and he ended up um, going off to Tarifa to start the distribution there. And I stuck with Ken. And so I've basically been testing kites with Ken for, you know, all of those years, like 18 years or however long it's been. So I've been really in touch with um, all of the kite testing for all those years. And so it's only now that it's sort of Ken has gotten really busy with wings because um, that came along a few years ago. <laughs> Ken invented that. Mm. And he really went down that path. And um, that sort of freed up more space for me to step into the design role for the kites. Um, and he could focus more on wings. And yeah, that's sort of how that transition took place. Are these big footsteps to follow in uh, of Ken, would you say? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Ken's, I've, I've, I have to give Ken all the credit. I mean, he's the reason that I'm able to do what I'm, what I'm doing. Um, I've learned from him all these years, um, watching and, and learning and, um, you know, just gaining all that knowledge from time spent on the beach with him and talking about kites. And, um, he's been an amazing mentor through, you know, all these years and bringing me up to speed and getting me to the point where I can, take over the design i can only imagine the influence that ken's had on you in all that time that you've spent from the the short time that i was able to interview him on the podcast here i was absolutely amazed by his insight and certainly his own history which i don't think is spoken of enough about how big a deal he was in the sport of windsurfing but it was a lovely chat i remember having with him and i i can only imagine how nice it must have been to have a mentor like that around in your life. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah. And he's very humble he would be the last person to ever tell you about his history unless you asked. And, um, I actually listened to your podcast with him and I, I found it really interesting as well. Just, you know, cause that, that's kind of stuff that Ken would never, not necessarily talk about his, his achievements in windsurfing, but, um, yeah, he's got so much knowledge and so many years of experience and it's the type of experience that you can, only gain over, you know, that many years spent testing products. And he's, you know, he used to test so much windsurfing gear. Like he, he was doing this and testing and competing and, you know, in this whole world before I was even born. So that <laughs> yeah, wow. speaks to, you know, how long he's been doing this and how much knowledge he has. Moving on to the Neo SLS, it's just launched 2024. How is this kite working? A kite that you've had a lot to do with? Um, yeah, this is, um, a kite that I'm really in touch with. It's the kite that I most like to ride because it, you know, my, my style of riding, I really like to ride waves and, and ride a surfboard. Um, uh, I mean, I like to ride everything. I also like to ride a twin tip, but, um, you know, my 
best and most favorite days are definitely when there's big waves and um, strong wind, and that's where a neo really shines. And this is a kite that I've been working on since 2016, something like that. And oh, wow. okay. um, yeah, we've really been able to develop it in a in a really um, great direction for waves. And um, yeah, I'm I'm really happy with with uh, the changes we've been able to make for 2024. So uh, yeah, I think it's the the best wave kite in the world, or at least at least I hope it is. That's our aim. Well, it certainly proves itself um, not only with the recreational kiteboarders that have given us great feedback, but also our world champions that use this kite on the world tours and the big air world tour. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's different for this 2024 Neo SLS? Yeah, so um, there's a few key differences. Um, so first of all, when you look at the kite compared to last year's Neo, you'll notice that the wingtips have a little bit different geometry and the goal with the kite this year was to speed up the turning, improve the deep power and, um, and just sort of make it smoother overall in general. Um, and so if you look at the wingtips, you can see that the wingtip is a little bit more square. So the corner at the very end of the wingtip is a little bit more forward. And this is sort of like a continuation of what we already started to do last year by making the wingtip more square. And what we find with making the wingtip more square like this is that it just makes the tips more reactive. It sort of packs more power out into the tips and, and puts that sort of direct power right into your back lines. So when you give the kite a steering impulse, that front corner of the leading edge sort of opens up and the kite twists in a way that, that makes it respond really quickly to steering. Um, so by, yeah, by changing that wingtip geometry, we were able to speed up the kite. Um, one consequence of making the wingtip wider like that is it does make the tend to make the bar heavier. So that's something that we had to counteract. And so, um, we made some changes on the tip strut to sort of soften the bar and uh, bring everything back into balance. So basically making the profile a little bit straighter on the tip strut and, uh, also opening up the the angle of attack a little bit so um so it's not quite as close to the trailing edge it's a little bit more open and funny enough like so that by making those changes we're able to speed up the steering and keep the bar you know the the bar pressure in line of what, what it was last year but sort of an unintended uh consequence or bonus i should say is that it actually allowed the kite to depower uh more because when you beat the kite out um, having less angle of attack in the tips uh, allows the the wing tips to sort of open in a way and and keep them more neutral, but it actually spills the power. So um, yeah, an un unintended bonus is that we also got quicker D power. So it's it's not often <laughs> with kite design or any kind of design that you make. Normally, when you make one change, you know you might make it better in one direction, but sort of lose on the other end. There's always a compromise. And, um, it's really nice in the case where you can make changes and you kind of get benefits all around. So we feel like we got, you know, quicker steering, better D power and, uh, yeah, more reactive handling. Well, I'm looking at the kite now very much in depth on the website. It does look absolutely beautiful. I have to say from a graphic perspective, what's your favorite, the orange and blue or the turquoise and blue? Uh, I think they, I think they both look really good. Um, I, I think, I think maybe the orange, orange and blue is pretty cool. Yeah. You're a bit more bolder than me, I guess. I like the, I like the turquoise <laughs> and the blue. So when you're talking about all these changes, um, I often think, and perhaps everyone listening sometimes thinks the same, 
these small changes every year, are they noticeable? You know, in fact, you've, you've mentioned maybe some more changes than usual. Um, they're obviously subtle changes because the kite has got its identity already as well. But if I was to blindfold you and in a perfect exact uh, 20 knot day on the same bar, same conditions, and I got to launch a 2023 Neo with you on holding on to the bar and a 2024 Neo SLS. Would you really be able to tell the difference? Um, I would be able to tell the difference. And that's really where it kind of comes back to my point that I mentioned earlier of spending a lot of time on the beach testing. So this is what we do every day, basically. We go to the beach and we fly. Whenever we have a new kite, especially one that we think has potential to replace the previous year's kite. We always test it against last year's kite. So we're always doing this back to back. We're always benchmark testing. And so, um, yeah, we're, I, I mean, you can't call it a blind test cause obviously you can look up and see which kite you're flying, but we try to be very, um, picky and very, um, particular about the things we're feeling. And so we're always doing this, this back test against the previous year's kite. And that's always the goal is to, you know, create something, you know, like you said, it has to keep the same DNA. You can't stray too far from your existing product because that product has a following and people expect it to, to feel a certain way. But there's certain aspects that, you know, that we might feel are lacking. Like, you know, we want a Neo to turn a little bit quicker or depower a little better or some, some small thing um, that can make it better in some way or give it a different feeling or, you know, make it more exciting or, you know, some, some sort of change that, that, um, you know, makes it an exciting new kite. So when people buy the new kite, they're feeling something new, they can feel a change. And I think if you do that back to back test with the previous year's kite, you'll always feel that, um, these changes we're making are, are worthwhile ones. Yeah. You know, that, that's always the goal. <laughs> We're talking about the wave kite here. It's the the Neo, the one that I guess you've had most interaction with. Now, with your background in designing surfboards, I mean, the, the, the lovely story you told me of you and your dad back in the gorge putting uh, straps on a surfboard just tells me and the, and the audience here that you've been into design for a very long time, especially in the surf division. Does this give you a, like like a real advantage when you're also not only working on the surfboards, actually the wave kites as well. It must be a perfect combination, no? Uh, it is a really good combination, yeah, because I can test the two things together at the same time. I can test the kites and the boards in the same conditions and um, get really familiar with how the boards are working together with the kites and um, how they're influencing each other. Um, but I think more importantly, it's just um, being really into you know, the style of riding that you're developing products for, I think really helps. Like I can't imagine being a designer who doesn't do the sport or is not, you know, passionate and fired up to go do the sport myself. Like, I think that would be really difficult. I think there are people who, who can do it and they rely on feedback and they have a really good team around them to give them feedback. But for me personally, I need to have my team around me giving me feedback um, and I need to feel it for myself. So, you know, I test every day with Patry McLaughlin and he's mm -hmm. my full-time tester here in Maui. And he's also, you know, obviously amazing wave rider, um, and really good athlete. Um, so, you know, I rely heavily on his feedback as well as the feedback from other riders. But, um, also I want to, when he feels something, I want to grab the kite from him and I want to go out and feel it myself. Cause I need to, 
I need to know when I go back to the computer to make changes, I need to know what I was feeling and what changes that might require. So, yeah. One thing that I think is hard to to grasp, certainly for myself, I haven't had a big background in development. It's not the path I went down in kiteboarding. When you, but when you talk about a feeling that you want to share with somebody else, everybody's so different, you know, and to be able to talk on the on the same page and to convey what those feelings are, I think is what makes people designers in the kiteboarding industry or designers in general. That's a real skill that I've I've seen in others on the team. And you just mentioned one of our team riders, Patry, um, out mm-hmm. there in Hawaii, but he's not the only person you get to to ride with as well. I'm reading here that you've recently been testing with the Duotone R&D and also Teal, who is our CEO of Boards and More. What's that like uh, to have mm-hmm. a CEO that actually kites and can give you valuable feedback? <laughs> yeah, um, Till is actually amazing. He's, um, you know, obviously been there from the beginning and has seen the whole progression of all the products, you know, we've done from the early 2000s all the way through to now. And he has such an amazing feel for uh, kites and boards and just products in general. And before he was at Boards and More, he used to be a competitive snowboarder. He was developing snowboards. And so that's in his DNA for sure. And I think if he wasn't, um, a CEO, he would, he would make, a, a, an amazing, uh, designer and, uh, you know, a tester because he's just got that kind of feel. Um, yeah, I think it just takes a certain type of, um, person, personality to, you know, to when you, you know, feel a kite that you, you sort of pick it apart. You kind of, you don't just ride the kite and go, okay, yeah, it feels good. You sort of go, okay, it feels good, but why does it feel good? And you, you know, you start to look at the different aspects of what's, what's making it feel good and you break it down. And it's also a learned skill. So, you know, someone might have a really good feel for how something feels, but they're they're not able to describe it in a way that someone can, you know, can understand or interpret into, into design changes. So that's, it's also kind of a learned language that, you know, those of us have been testing together for a long time we have kind of developed a common language to describe certain aspects of a kite's performance. For example, like we, we can, we have a million different ways to describe, you know, what someone might call a heavy bar or, you know, high bar pressure. Well, we can break that down into how does it feel like high bar pressure? Does it feel like it's a hard, like hard bar? Does it feel like it has a, a long depower stroke? Is it a progressive bar? Is it, you know, we have all these different ways of describing things. So we have this common language. And um, yeah, that just takes time to develop and, and working together with, with someone for a long time to, to create that. It's def- it definitely looks like that from, I guess, the outside, this secret code that designers have. Also, you know, it's not just designers talking to designers it's the testers as well they all are very very good at staying subjective taking the emotions out of things and getting the job done like that let's move on now to the concept blue project from duotone which is really pushing the boundaries of sustainable development i myself very involved in sustainability and i've been really amazed by this project now there's already some projects under the concept uh, blue label sky can you tell me more about the Vault SLS Concept Blue? Yeah, so this is a new shape that uh, we worked on last year, and um, it's sort of a small to medium wave all-round surfboard. 
Um, it looks a little bit like our fish. It's got a swallow tail, um, but it's a little bit, um, I would say more high performance than the fish. So it's got a more pulled in nose, more pulled in tail. It's a really fun, exciting board in small ways. Um, but besides the shape, um, what we're most excited about with this board is the new concept blue construction that we're offering this board in. And, um, this board has a really unique look. It's got a real dark, almost black finish. And it's made out of basalt fiber, uh, which is a, a sustainable material. Um, it has a, a recycled EPS core. So I think it's like a 40% recycled EPS core. Um, it's made with the, the basalt fiber that I mentioned, uh, which is woven together with an Enegra fiber to sort of dampen it down. It has a cork shock absorber, another natural sustainable material. And it's bind it all together with uh, bioresin. So we're using a, a like basically the best uh, bioresin that's available in the market. It's called Sikaman. It's made in France. Um, and the cool thing about this board is we're producing it in uh, Europe. So this board is produced in Sardinia in Italy. Wow. And um, actually the cork that's in the boards is locally sourced there in Sardinia. So it doesn't have to travel far to the factory. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we're really, um, proud to be able to offer, you know, this sustainable surfboard construction, um, also made hundred percent in Europe. So, um, that's really cool. And I think the the look of the board itself is, is really striking. The material, the basalt material has sort of like a hexagonal pattern, which, which looks really cool. And, um, yeah, it's, we're, we're really stoked to be, to be able to make some, you know, take some steps towards making more sustainable surfboards because in the past it's been, you know, very challenging. Um, it's no secret that <laughs> the surfboard industry is a pretty dirty one, like, you know, using a lot of chemicals and, um, there's a lot of waste, you know, a lot of tape and a lot of plastic and a lot of, you know, wasted resin. Um, so it's definitely not uh, a very sustainable industry. And so to bring it, you know, one step closer to, um, being a sustainable product and, and using more sustainable materials is, is something really cool. And we have a lot of sort of runway with this, um, factory. They're doing a lot of really cool stuff, um, with different grades of, of recycled EPS cores and compostable materials. And, um, so I think this is just the beginning of, of us working with them and being able to offer more sustainable, uh, surfboards in the future. And uh, I think the key thing also to mention is that the performance is is there. When I look at the videos and photos of some of our top riders using this stuff, it's really, you know, you aren't lacking on performance, trying to make things more sustainable. And personally, it just fills me with such excitement that we're going down this route. We obviously care about that massively at Boards and More. We have the Save Our Playgrounds um, campaign, which has been running for a long time. But this is really special, the Concept Blue and I imagine just like uh, myself, Sky, it's uh, it's exciting for you to, to start to think about just how sustainably can you actually make some of this stuff. Now, we're almost at the end of our chat today, Sky. It's been wonderful to listen to what you, what you do and your new roles as a kite designer. Can you quickly tell me why is Maui, in one sentence, why is Maui the perfect place for you to live shape test and develop and base uh base your career in life well it's uh very windy i can basically go to the beach and test every day which is really crucial for my line of work um 10 minutes from the beach it's uh you know a place i can be in the water every day and 
it's a place that I really enjoy living. It's beautiful nature. It's fresh air. We're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, so there's not a much cleaner, more uh, you know, natural environment to live in than than here. And um, yeah, I'm really lucky to call this place home. Scott, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Lewis.